You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to Be Real, it is your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. From Portland, Oregon, my name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And from Brooklyn, I'm Noah Ballard. Are you ready to do a podcast? I, I've, I've not been more prepared for anything in my life. All right. So today, folks, um, we are talking about three movies about cartoonists, comic book authors. They are Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. The new biopic of Portland-based cartoonist John Callahan stars Joaquin Phoenix. American Splendor, which is a biopic about Harvey P. Carr starring Paul Giamatti. And then we're going to do a Kevin Smith movie. We're going to do Chasing Amy. But the big news, the big news is that uh, our guest today is Gus Van Sant, the director. I know. It's pretty exciting. (laughs) I, yeah, I couldn't believe it when I, when I heard you two on this interview. It's pretty great. So if you don't know Gus Van Sant, he made this movie, Don't Worry, You Won't Get Far on Foot. But he's also had a pretty varied and long career from making indie movies in Portland in the 80s, Malanoche, Drugstore Cowboy, My Own Private Idaho, uh, some commercial success in the 90s with most notably Goodwill Hunting. But then Finding Forrester was a hit as well. He made Milk, um, which for which he was nominated for Best Director, I think, and won Sean Penn the Oscar. And then the last 10 years have been... Uh, have been rough, but yeah, paranoid this, park and whatnot. Yeah, sea of trees. But this is a. Uh, people are talking about this like a sort of return to form. So Noah and I will get into whether it is. But do we need to ethos corner, or when we have a twice Oscar nominated director on the show, should we not do our ethos corner, or is that more reason to do it? I think if anything, it's more reason to do it. Here comes the cage. <laughs> Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Hello, Ryder, Donnie. Donnie, hello, Ryder. How are you, buddy? I'm pretty good. Went to the gym today, made my annual visit. As we discussed before, off the air, you are going for tone, right? No, yeah, I'm not one of these bulk guys. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm going for I'm going for tone. And if you want to follow my journey, you can in addition to following the Be Real Guys Instagram, you can follow the Noah uh becomes a, a fit person Instagram. Uh the username is NB underscore in it to win it. I currently have five followers. If you want to support my journey, check it out. If you want to support my fan Instagram of Noah's Journey, you can follow at ToneZone underscore CSP underscore NB. So, um, what about you, Chance? We adopted a dog named you July. You adopted a dog? Yeah. Wow. Uh, she, July? A, yeah. She's a sweet little terrier. Um, and How old is she? She's two. She like house trained? You know, they don't tell you when you adopt them. I know. And I, <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh somebody at some point house trained her, but it didn't do a ton of good the first few days when she like didn't eat and like had various infections. But we're coming around with old July. She's she's really made the couch she's usurped my movie watching position on the couch already, so 
I think eventually we'll collaborate on that space. Okay, let's run. So we're going to start with Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, which is a, a joke from a John Callahan cartoon. Uh, to kind of describe it, it's a, like this posse finds a, a wheelchair that's tipped over and then like sand markings kind of leaving the frame. And the sheriff's like, well, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. And that's the kind of, uh, you know, dark, non-PC humor that really populates John Callahan's work. Um, so John Callahan had his cartoons throughout the 80s and 90s published in a lot of national publications, but he was he was a Portland guy. Uh, and there's been some cool writing by like Portland publications about, you know, for two decades, you could be walking around the northwest side of the city and just see this figure zipping along at preposterous speeds in an electric wheelchair. And all you would see was this, you know, somebody called it like a tangerine flash. He had this, just this shock of the shock of unkempt red hair that would go by at, you know, 22 miles an hour while you were trying to get caught or something but yeah so john callahan was a portland fixture and sort of the journey of this movie and gus van sant being a former portland fixture as well they sort of ran in the same circles uh but it was robin williams who first wanted to make this movie and he optioned callahan's book in the 90s and then for whatever reason it just like didn't happen and williams got too old and gus van sant was working on different projects uh but after I guess both Robin and Callahan have passed away in the last seven eight years, um, and Van Zant was sort of reinvigorated to to make this movie, and Joaquin Phoenix gets the part in a film that shows Callahan's journey from being a, a very young man, uh, a very young alcoholic, who shortly early on in the movie lo- loses the uh, use of his most of his body. Um, in a car accident where he and Jack Black are like blackout drunk. Um, and he, it's about journeying back from that and finding his muse and getting off the sauce with the help of the 12 steps and Jonah Hill playing this recovery leader named Donnie, uh, in a performance we're definitely going to talk more about. Uh, yeah. So it's about cartooning, forgiveness, sobriety. Let's get into it. The last day that I walked, I woke up without a hangover. Ah, pretty groovy day, huh? I knew I had an hour or so of grace before the the withdrawal symptoms set in. And that was it. Keep them coming, bro. Dexter had mistaken the light pole for an exit and slammed into it at 90 miles an hour. And Joaquin Phoenix is like an interesting, what's your, what's your feeling about him generally chance? I know you like go nuts for the master. So I imagine you like go nuts for Joaquin, but he's like a pretty, he's like one of the acting's more weirder, like methody kind of. Right. He's not Robin Williams. (laughs) I really like Joaquin in general. And I like, I feel like I like this casting. Can you point to specific things that he's like, really doing well here though i i kind of i struggle to attach myself to this performance well it's a good physical presence because i mean he's clearly going for hyper realism and i think one has to be careful with a movie like this in 2018 about being just like labeled as ableist because he is like an able-bodied actor right and, and i think because you have a joaquin phoenix in there giving his all to this physical performance like it's above that criticism 
but also that sort of costs it, I think, a bit of comedy because it's you can't play those moments for laughs, really, except for the one like time he just eats it uh, mm-hmm. and the kids pick him up and it turns into that nice moment. You you don't really have any. It's because that's the thing. He, John Callahan is a character who's so like annoyed at being disabled. Mm. And the movie's also sort of annoyed at him being disabled, I think, too, for its sake of being a comedy, which I think it is. You think this movie in general is a comedy? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, this is a comedy. Huh. What do you think it is? I think it's a drama. But this is the thing. It, it This is a movie that that undulates between like what it is sometimes it really reminds me in the way it's edited of Gus Van Sant's like early work and sometimes it just reminds me of like unabashed Oscar bait Van Sant literally does like a a montage sequence of like scenes from this movie just in case you've forgotten them yeah yeah (laughs) which is so cheesy and it like threatens to unmake this movie but for some reason it doesn't Right, yeah. I think those moments actually, it, it even tinges a little bit more toward like a Lifetime movie. Oh, yeah, sure. But yeah, you're right. There is something about, especially like Jonah Hill's performance and the presence of the stable of people that Van Zant has gotten to be in these therapy groups, like Udo Kier, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. Like the therapy scenes right. really bring it back to a more like pull no punches indie movie. I, I think those are my favorite scenes in the movie. And it's such a tr- like a tired old thing, like having people sitting in therapy, just like being honest with each other. Because right. like, but for some reason, it does play well and it plays fresh. And I think that's because it ultimately is a comedy, not because it's a drama. Like it's it has these reversals of power. Like someone will say something offensive, and then you think someone's so offended, but then they say something even more offensive than that person just said, and that kind of like relieves <laughs> the tension in the room. Yeah. Which I right. think is the saving grace of the not saving grace, it's the building block of the movie is moments right. like that where you're building up to these very John Callahan-esque punchlines. You right. know, creating these like ridiculous visuals. You know, it opens with this like montage that's happening on three timelines. Right. And it has life. that fucking it's it's the Dunkirk of like Portland uh, comic <laughs> drawers. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which kind of pushes back against that, you know, the biopic form. Um, but then, yeah, you're right. Like to, to actually find that ending, we have to literally follow him doing the 12 steps, which can be very sort of like saccharine and on the nose. But, but again, good- I think it's a good introduction to like that lifestyle. The, the realism that it has you buy into with like some of like the hospital scenes and yeah. some of the stuff, but then it like the doesn't giant, show like, you seventies iron contraptions. Right. And yeah. like him seeing the gymnasts like on the lawn, you know, mm-hmm. but then it has like some of that unbelievable, like broad comedy, like, and then Rooney Mara's dating him now. Yeah. And it's like, why he, he's, whatever um because where did she come from like a but anyway but it's too realistic in some ways and too sort of you know uh, catch me if you can in other ways where it's Mm. a and now we're in the next moment of his timeline um what do you think of jonah hill i don't know because like it's so interesting the casting choices in this movie Mm -hmm. because like isn't it so isn't 
isn't there something questionable about casting not only like a totally able-bodied actor to play this role, but then you also like hire like a, I would say arguably like very straight, you know, actor to then portray this, like the face of like being gay and having AIDS in the seventies and eighties. It's like Mm. sort of crazy. It is sort of crazy. And he's like, it's like a James Franco move. It's somewhere between like vamping in a really like good way and then like some kind of bad mincing at times. But then he's so fucking good though. Right, Especially by the end and like the understated, like he'll lose a little weight like from month to month when they see each other. But it's not like, it could have been lifetime movies like dark circles under the eyes and like him like on an IV or something. But instead he's like wearing his clothes but they're like a little bit bigger on him than they were. I mean and you've seen Jonah Hill play like the whisperer to the leading man before in like Wolf of Wall Street and Moneyball to really kind of push along his motivation. But you've never seen him do this kind of like weird, like, you know, dress like Lady Galadriel. He's like an oracle figure in front of everybody where he's in like total control. But then as John gets to know him better and better, he gets him alone and, and you sort of see that like, yeah, the process of, of recovery for everybody else lasts a lifetime and it's torturous the entire time. I don't know how I, if I find this movie forgivable or like cute in a sort of because it's dated. It's a new movie that's dated. It has those moments too where it sort of like does this rhetorical debate with some of John Callahan's art. Like there's the right. scene where he has the one in Penthouse and it's the guy like sweating bullets because he's running from a fence that says this area guarded by lesbians. Uh-huh. The militant feminist bartender's like that's offensive, but then like you know, three white, like good looking, educated men are like, well, actually it's a play (laughs) on, but I think the movie finds them to be the heroes, not the, the militant lesbian. Well, and that's, I mean, you could say, where's the line with John Callahan cartoons and you should just give him a Google if you want, if you want more of a taste, they work particularly well when he like makes jokes about his particular like political identity um, with people with disabilities, uh, quads as he called his his quadriplegic, um, right? You know, countrymen. Um, but they don't. Of course, they don't work quite as well when you know he's going like trying to take the piss out of other marginalized groups for like no real, real reason. And there's some pretty like sexist ones, and a lot of them are just sort of middle of the road like New Yorker cartoons. Um, well, yeah, the thing about him is that he he's a morbid presence, and you can listen to him on. Uh, he was on Fresh. They Fresh Air reran an interview with him from like the early '90s with Terry Gross. He just describes cartoon after cartoon, and some of them Terry's like, "Oh, that's really good," and some of them she's like, "Oh, dark," which is interesting, and I think excuses some of what he would call "quote unquote" survivor humor, um, and then sure. like doesn't excuse some other some other parts of it. But I think that personality works well with Joaquin. I think it makes for great repartee with the Jack Black character, Dexter, who ends up getting him in the car accident, which that's a weird thing. Cause you know, the entire time what's about to happen. And yeah. the movie just keeps being kind of honestly, like relentlessly chuckle worthy in the lead up to that as they're just going back and forth. And it's like, wow. Yeah. It has almost these, like this fairly brother quality to it, but you know, like you're leading up to a car crash where he's going to like lose all of his the function in his lower body right shall we rate it and then listen to gus van sant talk about it there is no ambiguity on be real 
all movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good Good, Bad Bad, Good Bad, and Bad Good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry, the second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or awards bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. So I think this movie has some of the most incredible like scenes and performances so far of 2018. I think the Jonah Hill one is really interesting. I think the Jack Black one is really interesting. Like, that's some of the best acting. Because you take, like, sort of a stock Jack Black, like, drunken, goofy guy at a party. And yep. then you, like, have to, like, have him sort of do a requiem for that. And it's totally brilliant. Um, the scene where they meet up later on is fantastic. And they're just, like, they're two sides of the same coin. They're the same drunk, goofy guy at the party, one of whom the party ended in paralyzing fashion. And the other whom, like, just kind of kept burning the candle both ends for 20 more years. And it's, it's, that's totally fantastic and like definitely worth seeing, but I think much in the way of like Milk and some other post Goodwill hunting Gus Van Sant films and pre Goodwill hunting Gus Van Sant films, this one, like it's a little, it's a little sluggish. Definitely. It goes on a bit long. Um, I think Milk's a better movie than this. Milk may be a better movie. It's still like problematic in certain respects, but yeah, I think that this one's worth a watch, but it's ultimately a good bad. I'm in total agreement with that. Yeah. You can check in with some great performances here. It's nice to see, uh, you know, Gus Van Sant like engaged and able to talk to like a wider film going audience than he's been able to successfully talk to in a while. Sure. Um, but yeah, after you watch this, you might find yourself sort of lost in like, that's really good acting. Should that person be cast there? 
you, yeah. I, I doubt you'll want to run out and watch it again. So a good bad for me too. Should we talk to Gus Van Sant? Let's do it. Something really profound just happened to me, man. I don't expect you. That's really funny. It's you. I draw these for a living, but people get mad at me because the subject matter. It's offensive. We all have led in our non-sober periods somewhat chaotic lives. So let me ask you first about uh, casting for John Callahan, because I mean, you've had to cast for people of national renown like Harvey Milk and fictionally famous hmm. people, I was thinking like Norman Bates. Um, but what about casting somebody that you actually knew? Does that present its own challenges? Well, I, I think I did that my um, one of my first films, Malanoche. Oh, that's right. I was casting Walt Curtis, mm -hmm. and I was casting the two kids that were in the story, and they were real people um, that Drugstore Cowboy was based on. Okay. They were real people that My Own Private Idaho was based on. There so were, then you've experienced this a lot. I, I think it, it's a common thing. When somebody's as... I mean, Harvey Milk wasn't that well-known, but he was more well-known than, like, you know, certain people. So sure. that, with this film, with Don't Worry, the question was how much are we trying to, like, really be John Callahan? Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, from the beginning, Joaquin says, well, I need, like, acne makeup. Like, <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I don't think we need to go, like, so far, you know. Um, because uh, sometimes it gets in the way. It starts to become, like, you know, too much. It depends on how much money and time you have. Sure. What was his impulse to like want to do that? Is that just the act actor's I think that, impulse? Yeah, I think that he that was just sort of like a trademark of John Callahan. Oh, okay. Like sort of acne scarring, mm, mm -hmm. not necessarily acne, but just like scars yeah, from yeah. his acne. And it just sounded like, I mean, having been through milk, it just sounded like three hours of makeup every day. So I thought, is it really worth it just to get the acne scarring? Sure. Um, and I didn't think it was exactly. I thought the red hair was important. But also his, you know, Joaquin's face is not, it's not like around as big, um, like Philip Seymour Hoffman or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're already not going to quite get there. You have to, you have to invent a character rather yeah. than emulate entirely. And the, also the way John spoke was very um, interesting. It was like elusive. And I think Joaquin was working on that and you know, it was difficult to actually do what he did, mm -hmm. what John naturally did. So when it comes to working with, uh, you worked with Joaquin in 1995 for To Die For. Um, coming back and working with somebody again at a totally different point in their lives, a totally different stage in their careers, had he evolved and changed and grown as an artist in ways that surprised you or were different? I didn't. I didn't feel that. I mean, he was more. He had done way more movies over the last twenty. Was uh -huh. it twenty years? Twenty, 20 or more years. 23. Twenty three years. Um, so he was seasoned as he had been through a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot of film stuff. Um, and I, I had known him that whole time, so I knew a lot of his. Um, you know, the things that made him cautious and the things that that disturbed him. You know, like I. I kind of knew just by being around him. I was his neighbor in New York for a while, and um, those those seemed to me new, like those things that like I was sort of witness to, like through the years. 
were new. They weren't like the, the Joaquin that was 20 years old. Because when he was 20, he hadn't done that many things. He'd, he had done one or two things. He was in space camp and parenthood. Right. Um, but it was kind of like a new thing for him. So it wasn't fresh. He yeah. was He wasn't seasoned and maybe grizzled. <laughs> um, but... Um, but ultimately everything was the same. Like, um, he's really, he really like gets into it to the point where he can, he can't think about anything else. And so whoever's around him has to read lines with him and he's, you know, constantly thinking about it, taking notes. His, his copy of Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot was, you know, like bent and like all these different types of like outlines, annotated annotated and writing in the corners with pages added. I mean, he really works on it. Yeah. Um, Which was true with To Die For, too. He did the same thing. Hmm. So I want to ask about the the therapy scenes in the film. It struck me when I was thinking about them later that uh, another of your most famous films, Good Will Hunting, like hinges on therapy scenes. And there's a group therapy scene in Drugstore Cowboy, too, I think. Yeah. Um, is there something... Uh, I mean, I'm sure going from John Callahan's story, you've got to have the 12 steps and got to have them in that room. But is there something um, appealing or attractive about the therapeutic relationship or that kind of dialogue when making a film? I think there is, you know, like I think that was always kind of um, um, thinking about ordinary people. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I was, when I was able to, um, I mean, Drugstore Cowboy, not so much. That was more like a real, I think that was, it must have been in the in the original screenplay, or um, there was something about that scene that was a kind of filling out of the reality of this kind of uh, methadone like treatment and group mm-hmm. that was with him at the time that that brought us into a therapy situation. I can't remember why we did that exactly. Whether it was just some some of it was Matt telling me Matt Dillon saying like you know, this, this happens and this, that happens because he was doing his own research. You know, mm-hmm. So he would like say, my friend Johnny, like they used to have group therapy, you know, so it could, it could have even come from Matt. And we had the guys there, so we just threw them in a room and said, okay, talk about your, yeah. they made it up. Um, or it could have even been one of, the, one of the guys like telling us about what they would do in their home, in their halfway house. But um, I think later Goodwill Hunting was always linked to ordinary people and, uh, that that whole movie like has this whole running you know thera- therapy scene between him and Robin. For sure. Robin, um, and then again, this had it in the book. This had um, had chapter five was describing the things that were happening in his therapy, and uh, I think I made it. Wait, I mean, it, I centered on it, and so you're right. I'm. I'm definitely attracted to it. Maybe it's a way of me like working out my own problems, like through a, a scene or something like that. Um, but it, I can't tell you why exactly. Is it compelling? How I was, I was struck when watching the new movie just how like, you know, there's a lot of deflecting through humor in those scenes, and then a lot of kind of like sudden anger. And I wonder if it's just compelling because the the emotions are all just so kind of close together mm-hmm. in those scenes. I think yeah, I have done group therapy before, and when when uh, I remember being in the one that I was in, there were things that were happening that I didn't, I hadn't been clued into, like I was With new. With the other people, yeah, oh, okay. I was new, and and so like there were these. 
I mean, it happens in our film. Like I sort of emulated it in my our film. There's these, these two girls who were pushing the buttons of another um, of a guy mm-hmm. in the group because they um, they knew how to push his buttons. So they kind of like just did it. I think because they were bored or something, or they were devious. And you know, he blew his stack, and he right. th- he stood up and like the. Uh, counselor was like you know down down um so um um there's that there's humor there's you know you know uh empathy there's um introspections there's there's people telling their life story you know to see where the problem may lay you know like after you're finished telling your life story and then somebody will say okay we know about your dad, we know about your sister, yeah. about your brother, but you never mentioned your mom one time. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, and then their eyes start to like spin <laughs> in their heads. So it's like, you know, it's honest therapy. <laughs> like, sure. But it's, um, uh, it's an interesting situation. So I sort of was trying to get, it, he was using it in his book, so I was like wanting to kind of like get in there and make it a bigger thing right. than it was in the book. I want to ask you about uh, making a movie in Portland this decade and this century, because this parts of this movie are set in the 80s, sort of near the time, or I guess right before the time you would have been here actually making, or I guess Malanoche was 85 and Rochicabo mm-hmm. was 89. What was it like trying to to do a Portland that kind of might be hard that to I find today, that you, that, but that you were in? Right. Yes, I mean, I think that I was... Um, I was here through all those years. I came in 1970, and then I, I I left. Well, I left in 1975, and I came back in 1982. I think it was there was a kind of a, an imaginary Portland in the screenplay, and also the movie. That sometimes I would catch myself, like you're saying, like, oh, I was I was there in '85. I was on 21st Avenue. Uh-huh. So um, I would have to remember it. It wasn't really like with me the whole time yeah I was there I I could make it up because I had been there in the past but sometimes I would forget which years were what and um, we had three areas we had like I think 71 then 78 and like 85 and then there was a little bit of 82 okay I wanted to bounce a quote off you I was watching this little featurette about the the making of Drugstore Cowboy and, and you're kind of standing around with Matt Dillon and Kelly Lynch and you're wearing a great coat in the video. It's a terrific coat. Um, but you said something like... Uh, is it a blue coat? It is blue. Yeah. Um, but you say something like... Uh, I've got it written down. When, when we're in deep and things are really starting to go wrong, that's when things get really fun for me. Does that still hold true as a director? I said it to the camera or... You said that to the camera. Or is that... Uh, is that, are those young man's words? Or does that that's still true? Hmm. No, I think that's when it gets interesting because you have to like actually work yeah. you know, like hard. Um, so it's, it tends to be fun. Because you know, you, otherwise, you know, like a lot of times everything's going smoothly. You can get boring. Uh-huh. But I think probably, I'm not sure what the deep thing might have been. What happened on that movie was... Um, the big thing that happened on the movie was I had never shot with a big crew. And mm. so uh, uh, having made Malanoche with four people, I was able to get, um, are you a filmmaker? Uh-uh. No. I was able to get um, like 90 setups a day. Like I could, 
you know, I wasn't that picky about the light, even though the lighting is really nice in that film. Yeah. It was, I wasn't overdoing it. So I, if we were shooting in this location, so long as the light was bright enough, I would just kind of pop around with the camera. I didn't, you know, I didn't redo each shot. Um, on Drugstore Cowboy, because we had these all these different departments, like each time you do anything, they all have to check it. And, and to do it in the first place, if I move the camera from here, so like over here, yeah. all of a sudden it's like everyone leaves the set so that the lighting guy can take over and work for 30 minutes. So I was getting on Drugstore Cowboy 13 setups a day rather than 90. So just a huge escalation of scale for you. Yeah, that a... I didn't really know how to sort of get rid of the people. Like I didn't know how to like <laughs> say, look, don't come in the room, let me get my shots, mm. which I could have probably just said that and it would have been okay. But I was worried. They they had me worried because, you know, it was 35 millimeter, and we got to make sure it's all you know perfectly done. And at the end of the movie, I really thought that I had done something, like it was overdone. You know, like a, it was too polished. Okay. A large part part of the crew had lost faith, mm. and were like you could see them going like like pretending like they're not talking about you behind the. So back. you were in pretty deep. And I was like. Okay, they don't they don't trust me. And I yeah, so I think it might it might have been that. Okay. I've always wanted to know the famously when Robin Williams improvs the line at the end of Goodwill Hunting, uh son of a bitch he stole my line. When How'd you know it was an improv? Uh I had heard somebody I'd read it somewhere. I, I don't remember. At at a moment like that, is that a is that a chill down your spine moment or is that an example of somebody who's generated so many ideas during that movie it's just kind of another thing how did you feel did, when that did happened? it work did you was that did you like that line it sent a chill down my spine but i didn't make the movie how did it feel i think we did it without the line i think he did a few different lines oh, okay and then i think we probably there was a way either to cut out cut it out or else we probably did one without because it was the end of the movie so we didn't yeah. know whether that would play um did it relate to something else did was there something, oh, because, okay, he's told the story about his wife. He's got to go see about a girl earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So stole my line, seemed a little glib. Uh-huh. You know, um, so you funny. So you weren't totally sold on it. No, no, I wasn't at all. No, there wow. were a lot of things that that um, happened with the improvs or ad-libs that, um, you know, I mean, sometimes I just think that's it. That's the best thing ever. In yeah. the In the case of that particular line, I wasn't sure. I mean, I liked it, but I wasn't sure. And we used it, so we liked it enough to, it passed the test. But um, there were little things that were always going on. Um, one one of the interesting things that, it's not really about the movie so much, but it's like while we were setting up the shots um, for the scenes in Robin's office, they were, they, I mean, I pretty much always shoot the scenes from beginning to end. So even if I'm going to use just a part of it, okay. I generally do, even if it's a five minute scene, I will, I'll shoot the whole, the whole thing rather than, you know, half of it or something like that. So, um, our camera was always repositioning and traveling and like dollying to one side or like going down. Um, so it had a lot of places and it was a time that you had to met, you know, like we had kind of a lousy, um, focus puller. What does that mean? The guy who like has to focus. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, sorry. So back in the old days, there was no way to know whether you in focus, you're in focus. 
the cameraman, the person looking through the camera, the camera operator, possibly could see, but that wasn't really their job, was to check focus. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, you had to measure it. There were marks in the ground. It was all very serious. Now you can kind of, now it's a lot easier because you have a little monitor. You can see, you can correct. They're doing it on a, like through a monitor, not even by the, they don't have to be next to the camera. Yeah. So, um, and the guy was also not very good. And, and he was, we couldn't fire him because his father was the head of the union, of the camera union in <laughs> Toronto. Okay. So, like, everything, and he was, there was a lot of problems. And um, so we had to um, do the full takes. In order to, like, do it, the actors had to run through their lines in order to get the right rhythm and the camera movement, the focus, the marks, everything. So... So I guess not to make it stale, or maybe because Robin just felt like it, he started doing his parts in like a cartoon character. So he would do like Bugs Bunny, but then that would, so he did his lines wow. as Bugs Bunny, and then Matt would do his lines as, you know, um, Bill Clinton. Okay. You know, they would choose characters, and they would do the whole scene as these characters, which was really funny. I bet it was great to be like, fly on that wall. And then like the next setup, we would have to do the same thing. So one would be like Janet Reno and the other would be like Baby Huey uh -huh. during a scene. And we never rolled on these things. I don't know why it would have been. We could have created whole scenes yeah. where they were playing these characters. It was super, super funny. Wow. And then one day um, um, I asked, or I mentioned it to Matt. I was like, it's so funny the way you guys are like do those characters when we're um, getting the focus marks. And Matt's like, it's exhausting. And I'm <laughs> Keeping like, up with him? Yeah, and I was like, what, you don't like it? Like, it's, I thought you were having fun. Mm. And he's like, you try and keep up with Robin Williams. And I'm like, well, we didn't have to do it. You don't have to. That's great. We're not even so. rolling on it. Wow, that's a great story. Uh, well, Gus, thanks so much for your time. I Thanks. appreciate it. Thank you. Sean, if the professor calls about that job, just tell him, sorry. I had to go see about a girl. Will. Son of a bitch. He stole my life. Okay. Well, Chance, bravo on that fantastic interview. Thanks, man. It's a, it's What's a good the premium content? It's a good day for the podcast, I think. Have you seen Drugstore Cowboy in my own private Idaho, by the way? I have not. Those, I watched those in prepar preparation for that interview for, you know, no great reason. We weren't going to talk about them. But I would think that if, if you listen to that and you're like, I've only seen Good Will Hunting and Milk and I'm not sure about this new movie, uh... I would go watch those, like his his original indie movies, because they they're just indie American indie movies from a time before Sundance, from a time before like just the general commodification of indie movies, and the as you point out, like the Little Miss Sunshining, <laughs> a Little Miss right. Sunshine's great, but the Little Miss Sunshining of like all movies of that genre, um, there's really nothing like them. So I would check those out if you want to like sure. dig back into the good stuff. And if you really want to just ball your eyes out and just like really tear apart the human experience, uh, I recommend Elephant, his oh, movie. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen that. His Columbine movie. And even um, The Last Days, the sort of not about Kurt Cobain, but basically is The Last Days of Kurt Cobain story. Okay. Uh, it's pretty, they're pretty fucking dark, but, you know, sometimes it's fun to walk with Michael Pitt in the woods for 90 minutes. So where do we go from here? Do we go to American Splendor? We're going to talk American Splendor. Um, Harvey Pekar? Mm-hmm. Chance, did you know who Harvey Pekar was before you watched this movie? No, but I don't read graphic novels or comic books. Yeah, did but you know he, him? 
No, but you'd think like you from watching this movie, you should have known him. Yes, it does make that argument. So yeah, this movie sort of follows the life of Harvey Picar, who's like this ne'er-do-well who has no talent to speak of and finds these artists to sort of allow him to them to document him in his daily life. And so he writes down offensive, racist, sexist things, and they turn them into art. And that book was put out called American Splendor, and there were dozens of them. And yeah. then and then he was on Letterman and he married this woman and I think he's dead now. He is. Yeah, he passed away. But passed um, away after the movie was released though cuz he's in the movie. This is right. sort of an American Animals biopic. Yes. Where you have half Harvey Pekar as himself in his 70s and half Paul Giamatti as him throughout his life. Yeah, so it was directed by uh, Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini, who are mostly documentarians, and that's why they're sort of, you know, playing with the form here of having uh, the real Harvey and the real Toby Radloff, who's like w- one of these characters who, um, you know, is constantly in Harvey's life as he works at the the Veterans Hospital in Cleveland, uh, even while being really successful. Um, so he's Toby's played by Judah Friedlander, who you'd know from like Thirty Rock and Avant Garde Stand Up. Let's talk. Can we talk about like what American Splendor is? You you came you came out hot there with the you know the sexist race. It's definitely angry. Um, it's angry. This is but the it's, sort of it's some of it's like specifically angry at blacks and women. As portrayed in the movie or from your own research, as portrayed in the comics that you see in the. You know, like the way he even draws his like black boss is like. Yeah, Mr. Boats. It's pretty bad. Pretty bad. Um, and then most of his ramblings are about, like, you know, women and how horrible they are to him and how crazy they are. It's dicey. It's problematic it, for sure. It's like, yeah, an angry, schlubby white man. Dirty white guy. In 1981, who's just unlucky in love and in everything. But being... his problems are so, like, first world still. Yeah. Like, he's never homeless. Like, he's never without, you know, food. Yeah. He's always just sort of, like, down and out and sad. But that's because he doesn't, like, do anything other than file these, you know, medical records away because, like, he's too lazy to apply for another job. And then when he does get this level of success, he hates it and, like refuses to monetize it. You feel like there are maybe parts of this character that are more politically radical than the movie made explicit, um, but then also they just kind of poke at him over and over again. I don't know if this is true of the people in Harvey's life, but like you're, un- you're clearly undiagnosed OCD. You're, right. I don't know if he's too lazy to get another job. I think he's terrified. Um, I think he's unwilling to put himself out there. He's, he, he, he sort of, he's happy in this, like this latent rage space where he seems like he spent most of his life. Sure. He's just such a, like a Hubert Selby Jr. Like Charles Bukowski character. Like yes. some guy who just like wants to see the company go on strike just so he has somebody to hang out with during the day, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, there is a certain level of OCD, but it's like reverse OCD where he just like can't be tidy with anything. And he like can't seem to wash a dish. Trigger tree. Look at this. We got Superman and Batman. And what about you, young man? I'm Harvey Pekar. 
doesn't sound like a superhero to me. Oh, forget this. Why does everybody have to be so stupid? Here's me, all grown up and going nowhere. I'm not doing as great as you think. I gotta get out of here. <coughs> My second wife divorced me. I work a dead-end job as a file clerk. So if you're the kind of person looking for some fantasy figure to save the day, guess what? You got the wrong movie. In the early 60s, I met this shy retiring cat from Philadelphia. Meet my buddy, Bob Crump. You should see his comics. I could write comic book stories that are different from anything that's being done. This is great stuff. Can I illustrate them? These are all about you? Yeah. You turn yourself into a comic hero. Ordinary life is pretty complex stuff. What do we think of Paul Giamatti here? I mean, he's a cartoon character. Like, that's not a... <laughs> that's not right. like a an insult. That's like what he's portraying. He's portraying a cartoon character, so it's hard not to like see how like outrageous his performance is. But then like the other actors on screen sort of match that. I feel like this movie, in its own way, it takes a risk by uh, Pulcini and Bergman using the the real Harvey Pekar. Because in you brought up American Animals in much the same way where you watch that movie, and as much as I love Barry Keoghan, I come out of that being like, I want to look into Spencer Reinhardt's soul, the real Spencer Reinhardt, and that's kind of what this is like. There's this thing at the beginning where you know Harvey Pekar is in this this white room recording the voiceover for the movie, and he's like, he's like, that's five, that should be enough for you, right? And then he drinks like this orange soda, and he admits he hasn't read the script, and right. then. <laughs> and then Bergman is like, uh, how do you feel about reading this? And you haven't read the script. And he's like, I don't, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> and so the movie takes a risk because I am honestly instantly more interested in the real Harvey P. Carr than I am in Paul Giamatti. Right. I think that the, because they attempt to both animate the cartoons and sort of be documentarians and you sort of put piece these scenes back together of like his formative time without really making a commentary on like who he is as a person. So what you end up with is just a mess of a movie. Again, you have a a movie that is rejecting the biopic form, but still has to eventually conform to its conventions. And I, I, I would love, you know what I'd love to see is the Jim Jarmusch version of this movie. Oh, what a boring it, affair that would be. It would be better though. I think it would be more tonally, um, structurally sound. Well, Just it would like, have Harvey Pekar like as himself playing 30 year old him. I think I'd rather watch that. And have like Tom Waits as the, <laughs> the, the OCD guy. You're describing something that on the right day I think I'd really want to watch. John Lurie is a character with no lines, just like in the background. I shouldn't have gotten no started on Jim Jarmusch. Um, oh, I go nuts. Don't get me wrong. I wonder if this movie could have used more just like movie moments. This might have been the same thing you were talking about with Don't Worry. But I feel like this movie was like one for the Picar fans. Like that's what you said. Like this movie thinks that you know who this is. And we get pretty deep into like the little dingy apartment incidents that created his work. But I kind of want to see the moment where like his accountant calls and is like, Harvey, you have $2 million in the bank. Why are you still working at the VA? Um, right. Or for like the Hope Davis character to be a little bit more like the Rooney Mara character. I, I think this movie is maybe a little bit too married to Harvey Picar, not enough to like giving us something a little more popcorn-y. 
Well, it's both like his biggest critic and his biggest fan. And that's such a weird place to jump from that. It feels almost like a big budget family movie or something. This is something you like play at Harvey Picard's 75th, like a birthday party. And it's 15 <laughs> minutes long. <laughs> and that's then, really like, well said. I don't know. I just like, I don't know who this, this old white guy is. And he seems to espouse some like pretty horrible politics. And I didn't think that like his cartoons, like I think the John Callahan cartoons, uh, some of them are really fucking funny. Like the, the Harvey Picard ones are not like that funny. I got the sense maybe you can't, but this goes back to what we're saying that you can't get American splendor unless you're on like issue six, you know, like it's just, it's utter mundanity. I don't know. So I don't like know what, what to tell pops you. pops about it? I think the thing is that it doesn't pop like a normal cartoon, but then like, how am I supposed to get that in a movie? Um, who can knows? I tell you, can I tell, tell, you me. Both, tell you who both of these movies really made me miss? Who? Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. I think he could have played both Harvey Picard and John Callahan. Um, and I think he would have done a tremendous job because in some ways, what I think is missing from both is it's it's really hard to make a good biopic about an artist because you have to in some ways imply their process, imply their inspiration and imply that their you know their quote unquote genius is something worth latching onto. When I think about like Hoffman in like Synecdoche, New York, he's the someone who can convince you that a person is deeply flawed, deeply sad, pretty boring but is also like really passionate and really driven. And I thought that might've been what was missing from both these films. Well, that's the thing that's kind of about these movies is that in, uh, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Like the cartooning doesn't even come into the movie until like an hour and 15 minutes into it. Right. Which is crazy. Yeah. And then with Picar, he doesn't seem that really interested in the cartoons themselves. He feels he's, he likes the idea of like being able to express how he feels about the world, but that's his only passion is right. having like a venue to do that. But he doesn't want to be like successful by your standards, which I guess makes him somewhat sympathetic, uh, both of them really, but it's not. But don't you think Picard must have been more intellectual than this movie makes him out to be? He reviewed books and jazz records. I just don't see that part of him where he like has like taste or artistic conviction. Well, I think the actual Harvey P car seemed more intellectual than Paul Giamatti was playing him. I agree. And much more going on, like behind the eyes, a sense of play, a sense that he was fucking with you, which is more interesting than just like, I'm so mad. I can't talk. Exactly. It's, it, it wasn't as, it doesn't seem like that's as stubborn a person as, um, Giamatti plays him. And I think for that reason, and for the reasons that this movie's like kind of long and kind of boring, um, I think bad, bad. I know this is like an Oscar darling, like whatever year it came out, but yeah, it's it's interesting formally fine, but it's a mess. Like I don't think that the performance lines up that well with the actual person, and it only highlights that to have both of them in it, and that is a fatal flaw for a movie to have. So bad, bad. I think even though I probably haven't expressed that I'm a little higher on it than you, I think there's some things that make it good, bad. I, I like, I like some more of the formal things. Like there's, there's a scene where, um, 
you know, somebody's like stepped on Picard's shoe or something. And he says, yuppie scumbag. And his, uh, and his wife says, you know, vasectomies can be reversed, right? As like at the same time, practically, like right. two people juxtaposed in a single panel, like talking uh, no, past each other. No, I think there other. are, that's the Giamatti and Hope Davis stuff are good, yeah. but it's just like a, such a wholly different movie on the scale of like punch drunk love or something yeah, where yeah, you're right. it's like, why don't you just do that? But maybe they didn't want to do that. I don't know why. It's where, where it worked in American Animals, it does not work here. No. Because American Animals is like mysterious and thrilling. You want to look into the eyes of the people who've done this. Exactly. You've never encountered people who would do such a thing beforehand. And here they are, your like movie heroes as real people. And that's the trick of the film. This one's like, this guy's a schmuck. This guy's also a schmuck in a different kind of way, but they're still both of them schmucks. Why am I watching this movie? You think that perhaps we have encountered the angry white man who's a little too attached to the childish thing he loves before? I think a many movie, many a movie we discuss is about yeah. like a grown white man with a Peter Pan complex. Get who, on, get on Twitter any day and find the people treating about Ruin Johnson, and they're a little bit too close for comfort <laughs> to Harvey Pekar. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, bad, bad. Let's get to let's go to let's shift let's downshift to Kevin Smith. I don't know if it's gonna be downshifting for me. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Chasing Amy came out when nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, which okay. is two years after what Mallrats and three after two, Clerks, I think three after Clerks, and this is the the third installment of what Kevin Smith calls the Jersey Odyssey. Oh, okay. And I, I didn't know this. I'm not a big Kevin Smith guy. You might have to guide me a little bit here, but it's it's in the the view askewniverse. Anything with like Jay and Silent Bob and all these people. Yeah, and there's two more of them after. There's Dogma and which and Dogma has a pretty interesting current like thing going on because it's like stuck between rights holders because of the dissolution of Weinstein Company. Yeah. And so like it's just not been digitally released in any way. Really? Yeah. It's super I mean, funny. Dogma's fucking crazy. It's a crazy movie, but like you can't get it online. Anyway, the other thing, the other one is, um, uh, well, they remade, they made a Clerks two, and there's Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. So there's actually yeah. six Viewers Universe movies, I think. Mm-hmm. Unless they Jay and Silent Bob make an appearance in Tusk or Red State. <laughs> uh, so you set this one up, buddy. What is Chasing Amy about? So Chasing Amy catches up with um, Ben Affleck as Holden McNeil, a sort of the Harvey P. Carr to uh, Jason Lee's banky, who is like the actual, he like pens the actual art over the pencil of Ben Affleck. But for some reason, Ben Affleck, much like Harvey P. Carr, gets all the credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we meet them at Comic-Con where they are pushing the latest issue of... Um, Blunt Man and Chronic, right? which is their cartoon that is loosely, if not exactly, based on Jay and Silent Bob and, like, the events of both Clerks and Mallrats. Uh, you can see in one of the posters, uh, if you're a Mallrats fan, that LaFors is the enemy in the, in the latest issue, the guy with the, the straw-brimmed hat. Anyway, and they're at... And they participate in some antics at Comic-Con and ultimately... Ben Affleck meets um, 
Alyssa Jones, played by Joey Lauren Adams, who is like a an indie darling cartoonist uh, who has this book called Idiosyncratic Routine, and they become friends, and then Ben Affleck. Oh, they well, the first Ben Affleck tries to pick her up, and she's like, "You idiot! I'm a lesbian," and starts like making out with this woman who we then never see again. Mm-hmm. And then they become sort of like asexual friends over such j- classic Jersey activities as uh, ski ball, uh, things that the jer- going to the mall, uh, sitting, sitting on, on a swings. swing by a harbor. <laughs> yeah, sitting on a swing near a body of water. All these classic Jersey things. Sure. Um, and then Ben Affleck, you know, is a heterosexual man. So he's like, you know what? This friendship thing is nice. And probably the, one of the more rewarding relationships I've had in my life. Let's fuck it up by seeing if this woman who's identified herself as a lesbian, uh, see if she wants to have sex with me and take our relationship to the next plateau. Uh, in this one of, I think the worst screen monologues I've ever seen. Um, it's- it's pretty gut-turning in 2018. Which then Though I can't imagine it fucking wasn't then either. Keep going. Because it's so bizarre. The movie doesn't like have a setup. It's like that episode of Seinfeld when um, Elaine tries to convert the gay man to the other team. And it doesn't work. And that's this movie. But it's much longer and it says, the, uh, says a lot more offensive things about gay people. Quite a long face, Horace. I'm just having a little girl trouble. Pressing charges? I get that a lot. Holden McNeil was set in his ways. The way he worked. The way he lived. And the way he thought love should be. But then, she showed up. Let me guess. You like her. This girl loves me. There's something you should know. She got a boyfriend. Well, no. Then what's to know, my friend? And this girl's got a secret that's going to drive him crazy. I like you, Holden. I'd really like us to be friends. what I tell you? She just needs the right guy. What's up? And if you come pick me up, I'll be your best friend. Now, the only thing standing in Holden's way is the truth. I can't take this. Can't take what? I love you. Not in a friendly way. Let's try to start as innocuous as possible. I came in pretty hot. And I'm going to leave pretty hot. But let's try to like, you know, how's the movie? How's the performance? How does it fit for you? How does it compare to like Clerks and Mallrats? Which I, I, I'm sorry to admit, I have not even seen. Well, it. The only way that I think this movie is like sort of fascinating is in the context of these other movies, because this movie, it like feels like it has interacted heavily with the John Callahan's and the Harvey P cars like of the world. Like it understands like what kind of people these are and that's who populates these worlds. Because, like, the first one was about boredom and working at a convenience store. The second one was the boredom of, like, hanging around in the mall. And the third one was, do you think we can convert a lesbian to a straight woman? It's such, like, it's a non, like, space movie. It's, it's a non- cons- I thought you were going to say it's a non-starter. 
And it kind of is. Well, it's also a non-starter kind of like outside a sitcom sort of premise. And even in a sitcom, like even that episode of Seinfeld is pretty fucking dated. Right. Um, I think the problem in relation to Kevin Smith, from what I'm able to glean about him, is that he is most successful when his myopia can really dig in. He can solve problems about, you know, settings and people and times with details. Dig in for references. Dig in with what they're thinking about. Dig in with what they're doing at 2.09 p.m. And this is a movie where the entire time you're watching it, at least for me, I was begging it to think bigger. Like, you have to think bigger than two bros who are horrified to find out they're in a lesbian bar. Like, that's not a horrifying experience. And there had to be plenty of people in 1997 who were like, that's just not a big deal, you guys. Right. Um, This movie's not that old to be this tone deaf. Right. It's not 1981. And it's also Um, like an indie movie. Like, shouldn't it have more progressive politics? Like, this is not that far away from a movie like Kissing Jessica Stein coming out, which is about how normal it is to be a lesbian in Manhattan. You know, like, it's so strange. It's so like, but it also thinks that it's like it has left-leaning progressive ideas about like not selling out and like what it means to like make art for art's sake. Yes, about the woman who was gay who broke your heart. But that's the thing that the art is also exploitational. It's not better. <laughs> uh, th- yeah. So let's talk about the performances. Okay. Ben Affleck, terrible. He's not good. I mean, his goatee is the worst piece of like aesthetic flourish i've seen on a person (laughs) it's definitely the be real guys award for worst facial hair yeah i mean what else would be in that category um Um, the murder on the orient express kenneth branagh's mustache (laughs) yeah grindelwald of course would be up there (laughs) oh man that's the level we're talking about yeah, he's not good, and also the fact that it is somebody that young and good-looking, I think, makes this harder to watch than being like, you know, John Callahan and Harvey Pekar are fucked up, and so I can deal I can deal more, I think, with somebody who's been through some shit than, like, this guy who's going to be in, like, some of all fears being right. like, it's not sex unless there's a dick in you. Right, yeah. A man, a, a man's dick. And that even his like reactions to like hearing how like a lesbian sex work, he's like, oh, like, oh, but he like doesn't seem convinced of that. It seems like it's a bad actor dealing with like a very problematic script. So he's right. like trying to like lean into the, you guys fist each other. What? You know, like it's, it's, it's sick. And those scenes are the foundation of their, like, chumminess. Right. This is, a, this is another thing I think this movie cannot remotely stand up to is imagine that Alyssa, the Joey Lauren Adams character, was just, like, more butch. If she didn't present as, like, a hot, straight woman, there would be nothing to their relationship. He only likes her because she, like, he thinks she's, you know, is hot and, like, looks straight. Yeah, she's the the prototypical cool girl from uh, Gone Girl fame. Right. You know, they can talk about their, like, sex traumas together. That scene is pretty funny, though, the one that's, like, a direct reference to Jaws. Oh, that scene's great. It's, it's pr- the best scene in the movie by a mile. But my question is, from that scene going forward, why isn't it Banky that, like, develops the relationship with her? 
Like, it's such a weird, safe choice to have, like, the antagonistic person be him and not Ben Affleck, who's the protagonist, but shouldn't be. He should be the I-can-sleep-with-anyone douchebag antagonist of this film. Right, right. Whereas Jason Lee's the one who's just like, nah, she's... You know, she's a person who I can have a relationship with, and it doesn't have to be about sex. You're right, but somehow Banky is just worse. But somehow the whole it's time, like, yeah, and he but just somehow by the end, he's screen just, time. He keeps getting screen time, like saying the f word. Yeah, like unironically calling gay people the f word. Right. Like no. And then having like woke Ben Affleck being like, "I wish you could channel your anger in a different fashion when you bash." It's like such the. It's like it's unbelievable. It's such fake fucking wokeness too. I mean, this is the other problem with this movie, where it, like it's it's Kevin Smithiness does not work. Where after that excruciating monologue you described, where Ben Affleck is saying basically, "Could you just please find the straight ten percent of you so we could have a sexual relationship?" She freaks out on him in the appropriate way. She's just like, "How could you ever say that to me or like any gay person?" Um. But this is a movie that has thought a lot about like what women and gay people would yell back at you if you said those things, but has not internalized it enough to change it. The self-awareness of this movie is a prison. Kevin Smith yeah. has designed himself a horrible prison. Right, but then, you know, going after that, you know, justified rant that she gives him, she then dates him monogamously. Yes. Like, that's the weird thing. It's like, it, it's it's thought so much about what a gay person would say back to you in that position. But then it just sort of assumes, but then they, like, give in in the end. Well, yeah, not, <laughs> not enough to, like, change any of the characters' perspectives or actually just, why don't we make Joey Lauren Adams the protagonist or for Kevin Smith to, like, write some different characters. But, like, the whole moral of the film, so chasing Amy, none of them are named Amy. Amy is from an anecdote that Silent Bob tells Ben right. Affleck when they've broken up about essentially the second act of this movie, which is not so much about her being a lesbian and, like, becoming straight just to date him. It's about him thinking that she's a slut and yeah. because she she's finger cuffs. And Silent Bob tells this story about, you know, him just probably should have accepted the girl for who he was that he dated who sounds exactly like Alyssa Jones and ever since he's been chasing Amy and it's like a stupid dumb movie moment uh and then he totally mishears her and then does that but it's not a good like the moral to the story the chasing Amy of it is realizing or not realizing that you are just like coveting women as sexual objects you raise a great point about like these the sorts of people portrayed here, hardcore comic fans and the people making these cartoons. Bigots. I, it seems like it. The big, the bigots from the left. I want to parlay it into a second discussion. I want to consider the galaxy of problematic people kind of around these movies today. That is Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Gus Van Sant. This real constellation of early 90s people who constant like constituted this new wave of uh what's that book about them down and dirty pictures right oh yeah the peter biskind book <laughs> right right and i just think like i think we're due obviously in the last year i mean and, and the faults of one of them do not specifically relate to the faults of any i i think that gus van sant probably um 
has is the least problematic of the six. Uh, but sure. But that what they represented is something I think we should consider because I think we still associate these people together as being very left-leaning, as being edgy, as representing a new wave in cinema. And I think when you look at their work now and look at the stuff that they've got away with and the stuff that they don't realize about themselves and they don't realize about the need for women and people of color and LGBT people to have more voices, I think we might have just confused youth and knowledge with like revolution and wisdom. I think what they were doing was interesting on a technical level, but when you definitely stop and think about it, the politics that they were pushing forward and continue to push forward are like very of a very, like only representative of a very specific kind of affluently raised white person dealing with the malaise of, privilege just the the white guy who knew a lot of uh pop culture stuff and knew a lot about movies and made good movies because of it but but i think it says something that like you don't have to look that far back to hear a character like uh banky from this movie like talking about you know using the f word like unironically and then even this year gus van sant really talented director you know, I think staple in indie cinema for 30 years chooses to make a movie about a racist white guy. Yeah. You know, that's what he chooses to put his energy behind. Like, that's what he's using his talent for. And I think that's very telling. If not, you know, it's not damning for him by any means. Like, he can do whatever he wants. But yeah, that he's not concerned with that, you know, I think reveals the sort of 90s indie mentality that, like, while it pushed us to an interesting place today... It was as fucked up as any other time in film. I think you're right. They're generational figures. And they got some mileage out of being like, no, we should tell our stories. And their stories were interesting. Stories about like the south side of Boston and like two 22-year-olds writing a script. And, and stories that, you know, put, put the bank robbery movie and put the hitman movie on new ground forever. But it's like it doesn't mean they grew and changed and they were all turned into profit and by the biggest monster of them all, Harvey Weinstein. So it's it's just like I watching both Don't Worry and Chasing Amy made me just think like, we've got some reckoning to do with this whole group of people. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Um, and I think that, you know, looking back at the work with a critical eye and poking at it, a bit like we do is not only necessary, but you know, is the responsible thing to do and be like, you know, I remembered this movie fondly. You know, I remember most Kevin Smith movies from watching it, you know, when I was living in New Jersey as a high school kid thinking like, cool, like movies about me in the mall. Yeah. And then going back to them and being like, I, you know, probably spoke this way too and was not a good person. And I don't know. It's icky, but where, but we see ourselves in these movies sometimes. And I think that's worth noting as well. Um, so what are we going to rate chasing Amy Noah Ballard? I think chasing Amy is not only a bad, bad, but is a pretty like asterisk problematic watch. Uh, not just in 2018, probably back then too. It's not very nice to people of color and queer people. Um, yeah. And it sees like being white is the hardest thing there is. It has its, like, bridge moment with Harvey Picard being like, life's so hard, man. Yep. And that's dumb. That's fucking dumb. 
this is one of the more some of the most upset I've been watching a be real movie in a while. Definitely, a yeah, bad. yeah. Um, if you could watch a movie about one cartoonist, uh, one comic book artist, what what would you be interested in? Uh, these people? No, no, no. Anybody? Any sort of comic artist? Um, I can't say that I'm like so familiar with that many comic people. Maybe the uh, far side one would be great. Gary Larson could be interesting. I think I could. Or really I, boring. Yeah. I could go for like a Bill Waterston, the making of sure. Calvin and Hobbes. That'd be fun. Or maybe like a Roz Chast one. Who's Roz Chast? Like, she had that memoir. She's one of the New Yorker people. Like her people always look like they're like sort of being electrified. They're kind of frizzy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's hysterical. I mean, she's really hysterical in that like, you know. New Yorker cartoon sort of way. Um, but yeah, that would be interesting. Why didn't Gus Van Sant make a fucking Roth Chaz movie? I don't know. Actually, okay, last one. You know what would be great? Is a movie about Scott Adams, the Dilbert creator, who is like a bad man. You've heard oh, about like... Oh, yeah, but he predicted Trump winning, though. I remember seeing him on like real time with Bill Maher and yeah. passing it. And then being so stumped as like why it was on my family's television and then being like... Yeah, he's, he thinks Trump's going to win. What a fucking idiot. He's just on Twitter being like, I do like 10,000 push-ups a day and no women love me and I created Dilbert, but actually it's like now a show about how, the, or it's now a cartoon about how the pointy-haired boss is the best. Um, I would love to see a movie that knew all the problems we enumerated about these cartoonists and then like really like stuck them onto Scott Adams. That would be fucking fascinating. That'd be funny. Who would you cast? Um, Bobcat Goldthwait as Catbert. Um, <laughs> I would guess Danny DeVito. Like Danny DeVito a... as Dogbert. That's funny, but I think uh, Michael Keaton younger would have been a good. That's very good. Yeah, thank you. Like a Mr. Mom, Michael Keaton could slide in there and just really the founder his way into Oscar glory. I, you know who I feel would be like really weird and creepy as Scott Adams. Like contemporary Anthony Michael Hall. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> anyway, actually, you know, Danny DeVito could probably play every character in Dilbert. Sure. So. We should just turn this podcast into who would you cast in this movie they're not making? Right, right, right. So we'll talk about Foxtrot and for better or worse and one big happy next time on Be Real. But for Family this, Circle the movie. Yeah, but for this time. Uh, Good Lord. Thanks to Gus Van Sant for coming on the show. Um, don't worry. He won't get far in photos in theaters now. We forgot to say, I'll save this in the copy, but uh, American Splendor is on HBO and Chasing Amy is on Hulu if you want to check out that steaming pile of problematic garbage. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my friend, should Sir. we reveal what we're doing for episode 100? If anybody, we should probably make, give him the assignment now. Well, your mission, if you choose to accept it, <laughs> is to watch all six Mission Impossible films. Uh, the latest, uh, Fallout Boy, comes out this <laughs> Friday. And I have never been more excited to do a Megapod about six movies with my best pal, Chance. Mission Impossible. It's coming up. Mission Impossible. There it is. Um, Ethan Hunt, you're on notice. Okay, folks, berealpodcast.com, as always, uh, as we alluded to some 
90 minutes ago. Do follow <laughs> our, do follow our new Instagram. Uh, that's a fun place to watch people who talk about movies deliver visual content. Uh, but Twitter and fucking Facebook, unless I said, decide to deactivate it, is still an option. Um, <laughs> but, you should do that. That should be our, you know... I really don't want to be Harvey on there. Car rebellion. And I, this goes out to you, Facebook. Fuck you. Yep. Um, we'll talk more about that off the air. Uh, anyway, we love you all. Thanks for sticking through 99 episodes. Thanks for sticking around so we could get Gus Van Sant. Uh, and do come back for episode 100. It's going to be a going to be a goddamn doozy <laughs> i can't wait <laughs> <laughs>